0: I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, you don't own a Bible, as I've said for weeks now, please go to our church's website, go to the leadership page, find an, an email associated with a staff member and, and send that staff member a message saying, I don't own a Bible, I don't possess a Bible, and we will get a Bible two-day shipped to you so that you can have a, a copy of the scriptures, not just for times like these, but, but every day to dive into and to grow in your understanding of who this God is and what he has done, is doing and will do for you. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll go ahead and we'll dive into the scriptures this morning. God, would you remind us this morning that you are indeed the victor, having triumphed over the darkest of dragons in this real life fairy tale? Would you comfort, would you encourage, would you embolden us this morning as we stare into the empty tomb together, that we might walk away more unshakable in our faith, more unstoppable in our commitment to spending our lives for your glory. Spirit of God, would you do this great work in the name of Jesus Christ the Son, to the glory of God the Father, I pray, amen. So 1 Corinthians 15. It's arguably the most concentrated chapter in all of the Bible, having to do with the doctrine of the resurrection, which is what the celebration of Easter is all about, the empty tomb, a day in which I'd shout, he is risen, and you'd all shout back, he is risen indeed. A day in which we celebrate a hope on the other side of death in a world sadly marked by global tragedy and suffering. I wanna focus our attention this morning on a single verse, a verse that surprisingly captures the only therefore in all of 1 Corinthians 15, the single so what of the doctrine of the resurrection in arguably the most central chapter on that very doctrine in all of the Bible. Take a moment to to give those 58 verses a cursory scan and what you'll find is that the declarative so what, it doesn't show up until the, the quill is put to parchment in verse 58. My goal this morning is simple. It's to bring that therefore, that so what before us, reminding us that the doctrine of the resurrection, it's not a doctrine that's only to be taken out of the China cabinet on special occasions like Easter Sunday. It has everything to do with how we think. It has everything to do with how we live. A doctrine that's alive and well 365 days a year, just like Jesus. But before we get there, it's important to note that I'm making an assumption this morning that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. I wasn't planning on doing this originally, having done so on a couple of occasions throughout the years, but I think I'd be remiss if I didn't give some small degree of time and attention to the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, knowing that the online platform to which we've all been exiled, it's opened a door for doubters and skeptics to listen in fairly unobtrusively. Around the time that Jesus walked the earth, there were dozens of messianic movements in Israel, and in most every case, the messianic leader was executed and the movement died along with that leader. Only one messianic movement not only didn't collapse, but actually grew, spreading throughout the entire Roman Empire over the course of just a few hundred years. So what's different about the messianic movement led by Jesus? The answer is the historicity of the resurrection. Paul declares in verses three through nine of 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James And then to all the apostles, last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. This brief passage of scripture is filled with a trail of evidence declaring the historicity of the risen Jesus as Paul declares that Jesus didn't simply just pass out as some skeptics have argued, but rather that he died in accordance with the scriptures. The witness of the Roman centurion alone is enough to solidify the argument. At that time and place in history, if a criminal escaped, the executioner who declared him dead when he wasn't, in fact, truly dead, would be put to death himself. Executioners made sure that the criminals that they were in charge of were undeniably dead. Mark chapter 15 tells us, picking up in verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate, the governor, and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. In John's gospel account, we're told John 19, verses 33 and 34, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. One of the soldiers drove a spear into Jesus' side, bursting his heart sack and causing blood and water to flow from his body. I mean, think about what Jesus went through. Even if he somehow survived the beatings, the crucifixion, the speared heart, somehow fooling the executioner, he would have then been wrapped in roughly 100 pounds of suffocating burial linens and then left for three days in a cold, dark tomb in critical condition with no food, no water, no medical attention. And if he somehow managed to work his way through all of that and walk out of the tomb three days later, there's no way that upon approaching the disciples that they would have seen Jesus as a triumphant, glorious king in his bodily state. In addition to his death, Paul declares that Jesus was also buried and not buried contrary to popular belief in an unmarked tomb. Some believe that Jesus did in fact die, but that his body was then buried in an unknown tomb and that when they went back three days later to find it, they went to the wrong tomb and found it empty. But the truth is that Jesus's burial tomb would have been easy to find because Jesus was buried in the tomb of a wealthy, prominent, respected member of the community. Luke chapter 23 tells us, picking up in verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. And it was the day of preparation. And the Sabbath was beginning. And the women who had come with him from Galilee, that is Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Had Jesus not really risen from death, it would have been incredibly easy to find the tomb, open it up and present Jesus's dead body as evidence. Not only that, the fact that Mark includes the eyewitness account of women it's a significant detail, not to be glanced over. We're talking about a time and place in human history in which women were marginalized, their testimony not considered to be very credible. If Luke were making up the story, he would not have included women as eyewitnesses to the location of the tomb. The eyewitness account of women lends credence to the historical accuracy of the event while also communicating the beauty of a God who declares men and women to be of equal dignity and worth. And as if that wasn't enough, Matthew's gospel account tells us that the Pharisees went to great lengths to make sure that the tomb was secure. Matthew chapter 27, picking up in verse 62, says the next day, that is after the day of preparation, The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, the governor, and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, Jesus, said while he was still alive, After three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Armed men stationed outside of the tomb for three days to make sure that the disciples didn't steal the body. Tomb sealed with a heavy stone. No one getting in, no one getting out. But even if the body had been stolen, it doesn't explain the fact that hundreds of eyewitnesses saw this resurrected Jesus. Again, coming back to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul continues with the evidence presenting a lengthy list of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus, including an appearance to more than 500 brothers at one time, Paul says, most of whom are still alive. For one, dispelling the idea that the sighting of the risen Jesus was just some hallucination. Very nature of a hallucination being that multiple people cannot see the same one at the same time. In addition, inviting his original audience to go knock on the doors of these people if they don't believe him. Most of the eyewitnesses, he says, still alive at the time of his writing to the church in Corinth. And then there's the circumstantial evidence implicit in Paul's writing here. Paul says that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The third day being the Lord's day. The early church started worshiping on Sunday even though devout Jews had worshiped on Saturday for thousands of years. And the Sabbath was sacred to devout Jews. They wouldn't have dared change the day of worship unless there was a good reason to do so. And there was. The early church started worshiping on Sunday in memory of Jesus' Sunday resurrection. Paul says that Jesus appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the 12, verse five, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, verse 7. Men who were well aware that if they were to worship a false god and call others to do the same, that they'd be hellbound for violating the first two of the Ten Commandments. I mean, we're talking about men who abandoned their jobs and went on tour, proclaiming unashamedly that Jesus had risen, proclaiming that they had seen the risen Jesus with their own eyes. What did they get out of the deal? They got mocked, beaten, imprisoned, and put to death in torturous ways. For the resurrection of Jesus to simply be some hoax, that would mean that hundreds of people carried to their grave, their blood-soaked graves, a lie. And that includes the apostle Paul. Last of all, he says, as to one untimely born, he also, Jesus, appeared to me on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That we know that Paul went from insolent opponent and persecutor of the church to church planting pioneersmen for the glory of the risen Jesus. The evidence for the resurrection, both biblically and circumstantially is overwhelming. Much of that very evidence found right here in the pages of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. I don't just walk through that kind of evidence simply in order to make the most of an evangelistic opportunity. The the so what, the therefore is drastically different if Jesus has not in fact risen indeed. If Jesus has not been raised, then the preaching of the gospel is an exercise in futility. Paul says in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, worthless, empty, fruitless, go find another Sunday hobby rather than sitting under the preaching of God's word. If Jesus has not been raised, Paul says, then your faith is worthless. He says, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain, verse 14. Not only is my life's work vanity, but so is your entire belief system. Having placed your faith in a lie, one of the millions upon millions of Kool-Aid drinkers throughout the world and throughout history, If Jesus has not been raised, then you blaspheme the true God, Paul says. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised. Not just that Christians are fools for worshiping a false God, we're also blasphemers for not worshiping the true God, for misrepresenting him. If Jesus has not been raised, Paul says, then you're a lost sinner. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Under the curse of God's wrath, dead in your trespasses, back to your own efforts to try and merit the love and acceptance of God. Be nicer, be kinder, be better. Good luck living with the never ending certain uncertainty of where you stand with God. If Jesus has not been raised, Paul says, then your Christian loved ones who have passed away are not where you think they are. Verse 18 says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. All who have died in Jesus, including your dearest loved ones, they'll never experience that which they hoped for. Our comfort in knowing that they're in the presence of the Lord, nothing more than a false hope. If Jesus has not been raised, Paul says, then you're a pitiful human being. That's strong. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, Christians. But if Jesus has not been raised, we Christians are the most pitiful people on planet earth. How sad and pathetic that we've not only devoted our entire lives to something imagined, but we've also forfeited, we've missed out on all the seductive pleasures that this world has to offer. I've said it on a number of occasions. The resurrection is the bottom corner piece of the Christian Jenga game. If Jesus has not been raised, game over. Christianity crumbles. The so what, the the therefore becomes incredibly simple. Paul says as much in verse 32. If the dead are not raised, Paul says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If Jesus has not been raised, then neither will we be raised. So let's stop pretending that all of this matters. There are too many enjoyable things to do with your Sunday. Well, maybe not at the present moment, but you get the point. Whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead, it has everything to do with the so what of how we think and how we live. What Paul emphatically declares here in 1 Corinthians 15 is this, Christian, you are no fool. Jesus truly did die the sinner's death that you and I deserve to die. Jesus truly did walk away from the tomb having conquered Satan's sin and death. Jesus Christ is the glorious, eternal, risen son of God. His death and resurrection are sufficient to cover all of your sins, past, present, and future. He promises to receive everyone who comes to him and he promises to forgive all who trust in him. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to come to him this morning, to trust in him. Cast yourself on him for his promised mercy and you will be saved. Our hope is not in a dead Jesus. Our hope is in a risen Jesus. And what that means is that Paul could have just as easily written verses 14 through 19 using these words. Because Christ has been raised, the preaching of the gospel is not an exercise in futility. Because Christ has been raised, your faith is not in vain. Because Christ has been raised, you're not a fool worshiping a false God nor a blasphemer for failing to worship the true God. Because Christ has been raised, you're no longer dead in your trespasses. Because Christ has been raised, all who have died in him are in fact experiencing that which they hoped for in him. Because Christ has been raised, you're not a pitiful, delusional human being, amen? Therefore, finally get to verse 58. Therefore, Paul says, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The only therefore in all of 1 Corinthians 15, the single so what of the doctrine of the resurrection in arguably the most central chapter of that very doctrine in all of the Bible, a therefore that calls us to two simple responses in light of the empty tomb, First, Paul says, we're to be steadfast, immovable, securely positioned, grounded. The same kind of language that Paul uses in only one other place outside of the book of 1 Corinthians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, Paul says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, here it is, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Steadfast in the hope of the gospel, Paul says, immovable in the gospel, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. The same kind of language that Paul launches out of right out of the gate as he jumps into 1 Corinthians 15. Verse one, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. What is Paul saying when he says that because of the empty tomb, we should be immovable in the gospel, steadfast in our hope of the gospel? Well, the word gospel simply means good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that we're talking about. And that good news includes a number of things. It includes his incarnation. It includes his life. It includes his death. It includes his resurrection and his session and his return so that we can say a number of things this morning as it pertains to our steadfastness in Jesus. We can say this. We can say because the tomb is empty, we can stand firm in the hope of the incarnation that rather than social distance from us, Jesus entered the slums of our broken world taking on human flesh. And what that means is that our God understands what it is to be human. Our God knows what it is to have his closest friends abandon him in his moment of greatest need. Our God knows what it's like to have his family ostracize him. Our God knows what it's like to be financially hurting and without. Our God knows what it's like to experience pain and suffering. Our God knows what it's like to weep and our God knows what it's like to face even death. We can stand firm in the hope that no matter what we're going through, Jesus is able to meet us with empathy and understanding. We're never alone. Because the tomb is empty, we can stand firm in the hope, not only of Jesus's incarnation, but his life. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless, obedient life on our behalf, the life that we could never live. And what that means is that You and I don't have to run on the treadmill of religious performance, burning ourselves out in an effort to earn God's love, nor do we have to wallow in despair when brought face to face with our failures. We can walk in confident humility, knowing that Jesus's perfect righteousness defines us. Because of the empty tomb, we can stand firm in the hope of Jesus's death. Jesus died a sinner's death, the death that you and I deserve to die. And what that means is that we don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to hide. We don't have to blame shift. We can freely confess our sin because we've already been forgiven in Jesus Christ. We're so bad that Jesus had to die for us and yet we're so loved that he was glad to do it. Because of the empty tomb, we can stand firm in the hope of Jesus's resurrection. Jesus victoriously rose from the grave, overcoming the darkened dragons, as I say all the time, of Satan, sin, and death. And what that means is that Jesus has overcome the condemning nature of sin. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, nothing to fear. It also means that we haven't been left powerless. Jesus rose from the dead so that we could daily walk in resurrection power. Because of the empty tomb, we can stand firm in the hope of Jesus' session, meaning his being seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of his people as there, as his Uh, their perfect high priest and advocate. And what that means is we don't have to wait for others to speak glorious words over us or get frustrated when they fail to, knowing that Jesus is speaking glorious words about you and me right now to the Father, this very moment. And lastly, because of the empty tomb, we can stand firm in the hope of Jesus' return that Jesus will someday return to set all things right, bringing this great story of redemption, this crazy story of redemption to its consummate end. And what that means is that sin, sadness, suffering, and death will not have the final word. Though we may be surrounded by, overwhelmed with many things that make this world sad, even now, it won't always be so. There's coming a day when Jesus will make everything sad, untrue as he orchestrates the greatest happily ever after the world has ever known. So, therefore, be steadfast, immovable. Your gospel is rich, Christian. Your gospel is full-orbed. Your gospel has the power to ground you in the midst of the most shakeable winds. Paul follows with a second call to action in light of the empty tomb. Be steadfast, be immovable, he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That not only are we to be grounded in the message of the gospel, we're to be invested in the ministry of the gospel. Always, Paul says, at all times, abounding out of the overflow of our fullness in Jesus. That because Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to the Father's right hand, all of the benefits of the indwelling Holy Spirit are yours and mine the spirit who guides and directs us, the spirit who empowers us for service, that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, that we might do all to the glory of the one no longer enshrouded in burial linens, adding brushstrokes of gospel color to the the canvas of our pandemic shaken world as we joyfully spend our lives for the glory of this risen king. That because the tomb is empty, we have an unshakable message on which we can stand and rest and find our hope. And we have an unstoppable ministry to which and for which we can give our lives. Which is why Paul closes 1 Corinthians 15 with these words. It says, yes, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain that not one act of gospel-formed labor will have been an exercise in futility when all is said and done. Another way we could say it, nothing will stop the building of Jesus's church. Nothing will stop God from receiving the glory and honor due his name. Nothing will stop this great story of redemption from reaching its consummate end. How do we know? Because not even the grave could hold Jesus's body down. And so I invite you this morning to rest in the richness of the gospel, to stand firm in the hope of the gospel. And out of the overflow of that, I invite you to spend and be spent for the glory of the one who walked away from the cold, dark tomb. He is risen, church. He is risen indeed. In a moment, we're going to continue to worship him, which would be absolute folly if he had not risen, for us to send our song out into the airwaves for a God who's not actually there. We're going to sing to this risen Savior and King together. As I've mentioned in the last few weeks, we're not going to receive communion. We're going to wait until we come out of this scattered state and reconvene in this auditorium together as the covenant people of God, as the family of God. Trusting that that'll be all the sweeter when we partake of that sacrament together as a church body, as an expression of Jesus's bride. But that doesn't mean that we can't remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Doesn't mean that we can't celebrate his finished work doesn't mean that we can't glory in the cross and empty tomb. And so I invite you at some point between now and the end of this service, just as you would before you come and receive of the bread and the cup, that you would just pause for a moment and stop and marvel wonder of wonder who Jesus is, that he stooped down, lived the life that we could never live, died the death that we deserve to die, conquered death, conquered Satan, conquered sin, is seated at the Father's right hand and will return to set all things right, eradicating all that's ugly, sad, and sinful in this world forever.